Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson, and we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity in their early lives to achieve great success. Our guest today is one of Britain's most celebrated writers who's published 14 novels and five short story collections, as well as a memoir over more than 40 years. Rose Tremaine has been at the top of the literary tree ever since she was named alongside Ian McEwan, Martin Amos, Salman Rushdie and Julian Barnes as one of Granta magazine's 20 young British novelists. She was born in 1943 and grew up in an upper middle class family with a butler who brought drinks to the treehouse and an adored nanny. But as a child she was as emotionally neglected as she was materially privileged and had to turn to her imagination to escape. Writing took me away from my very agitated, unhappy self in a way nothing else could, she says. Rose Tremaine, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. And we've come to see you in your really beautiful house in Norwich, which you share with your husband, the biographer Richard Holmes. And so many of the best writers, artists and musicians have suffered in their early lives. Do you think John Lennon was right that all art is pain expressing itself? No. Well, I think that's that's a kind of a, a simplification. I think there's probably... I mean, when you're creating something, whether it's song, whether it's... A novel, whether it's it's art, um, you know, it's painting. Um, it's a version of the self which is which is coming out, and you're not always totally aware. I think at the moment of creation, which bit of yourself you're drawing upon. So that to say that everything comes out of a state of anxiety or pain, there's a sort of truth in there, but that's very slightly skewed mm. because you're not at the time thinking, oh what I'm expressing here, however distant it might be from your own experience, is actually me expressing something else which is part of my own life and a painful part of my own life. I think there are moments like that, but I I think to say that all art is that is sort of partially right, but not quite. Mm. And as a child, you were known as Rosie, weren't you? Then when you were 18, you changed your name to Rose. You once said that you thought of your childhood as a long journey towards the one-syllable noun that you could own. Why do you think it was so important to change your name? Did you always feel that you were being forced as a child on something you weren't? Names have always been very important to me. Um, I couldn't, I'm not sure I can be totally logical about it. I think it was connected to the feeling that as a little girl, nobody much in my family was interested in the serious side of me. And I think I see this in my grandchildren now. I think children do have a serious side. You know, they love to play, and, they, and I was a very playful child. But I think I had a serious side. And um, the response to that from my parents was not in, at all evident to me. And the fact that they called me Rosie, which seemed to me like, I don't know, a slightly sort of flippant, sort mm. of 
It is uh, much candy more, floss it? sort of name. I felt even as, as, as a little girl that this wasn't quite right for me. It was probably very arrogant of me to think such a thing aged 10 or something. I'm not really Rosie. I mean, that's, that's somebody else. And I thought the name Rose was rather beautiful and severe. And I think that that's what I felt was probably not able to express it much as a child, but that I had a, a kind of severe bit in my makeup and that that name wasn't quite right for me. So I couldn't wait to be to be rid of it. But um, this question of seriousness, that was the reason for kind of wanting to not be called Rosie. Fascinating. And you grew up in Chelsea, surrounded by the Barrow Boys and the bomb sites, actually, in the war. What's your earliest memory? Very vibrant, my, my early memories. Um, our house was in Sloan Avenue, and um, it was about a 20-minute walk from there to the school I went to, which is the Francis Holland School for Girls, which is still there in Bourne Street. And I went there at age four and a half. And I remember walking along, first of all, along the King's Road and then down to Sloan Square and past it and on to Bourne Street. And um, we're talking about the 1950s here. So we were still in a bad state of post-war trauma, really. There was still rationing. As you mentioned, there were bomb sites. There was a bomb site on our road. But also the air was very bad. I remember we had to tie hankies around our faces when we walked to school because the air was, was so full of... of um, what we would now think of as very toxic particles. We perhaps didn't know what they were. But anyway, by the time I got to school, the hanky was quite black. Mm. And the same thing on the way back. And I remember that there was a road sweeper on, on our <laughs> road who used to be there every single morning. And I got terribly worried about how cold he might be. And so I said to my nan, who was my sort of primary carer, that I thought at Christmas we should, we should give him a scarf. Uh, because he really looked cold. And I said, that's a very good idea. Let's go and buy a scarf and wrap it up for him for Christmas. And I was terribly excited about giving him this scarf. And I probably wrapped it very badly so that um, when I crossed the road to give the scarf to the road sweeper, the scarf came out of its wrapping and fell into the mud. Oh, no, no. Uh, so, um, and now, of course, I said, no, he won't mind. He won't mind. He'll take it <laughs> home and wash it. Um, so I suppose I gave him the muddy scarf. Yeah. But, you know, they're very, very, they're not unhappy, those memories. They're, they're actually, you know, that was just just what my childhood was at mm. that time. Mm. And your holidays were spent at Lincoln Holt Manor, your grandparents' home in Hampshire. In many ways, that sounds idyllic. Did you enjoy being there? What did you do? Was it a sort of countryside Oh, yes, paradise? that was, um, I mean, I, I call the chapter when I, when I'm writing about this in my little memoir, I call it paradise because it, it seemed like paradise. Mm as I'm sure you can imagine from that rather sooty London and um, nothing much for children to do in those days, to go to this farm. My grandfather owned quite a lot of land and which he farmed very well actually, with livestock and arable and a lovely garden and fruit trees and everything. So it was a children's paradise. And I remember my sister and I used to just count the days to going there. I'm sure we drove my mother mad by that when we had to leave, we would cry and wail. <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't that, as I've said, in, I think, in, in my little book, that it wasn't so much that we loved the grandparents who were not particularly interested in us, but we just adored the place. And in those days, it's not really true now, I think, 
when you take children to a big house in the country, even if it's got a big garden, that you can't really take your eye off what's going on now. But the parents completely took their eyes off what happened to us, and we had bicycles, and we used to ride around and sort of, you know, be told to be back for lunch or whatever. And did you, you obviously had a lot of independence, you and your sister Jo. Did you feel liberated, or did you feel neglected by the grown-ups? I think we felt totally neglected. Um, I mean, there's a whole raft of things to say, isn't there, about that poor generation who had come through the war. I mean, they had had a very tough time. My mother had lost both her brothers. And they, they really just wanted to kind of have a life again. Mm. They wanted to go out and dance and smoke and have love affairs, I think. Mm. <laughs> so they didn't want to look after children, or at least my parents didn't. But what they had done is that they, they, they had enough money to pay a nanny. And um, so Joe and I had um, Vera Sturt, who's our hard nanny, who turned out to be a very, very loving, patient, kindly adorable woman so we were not neglected by her and all you know how children have a kind of they're measuring themselves against the person who is their carer all the time you know is she looking at us is she caring about us and we're always measuring ourselves not really against mum and dad but against nan and she was always there it was in my memory you must have had days off poor love but (laughs) But you say that the one thing you have in common with your mother is that you both don't like tea but did she do anything that was very motherly as you when you were a child? Was it sort of so traumatizing for her, really? Her the background in the, the war. The, the best moments that I remember with my mother when I was a child was a, a game we used to play, where I don't know who, whether she had invented it or whether I'd invented it or we'd sort of invented it together, but it was a lovely game whereby I became her and she became me, and this would manifest itself in. in <laughs> quite amusing ways I would sort of pick up the telephone dial the, dial the time in those days you dialed what, what she called dial Tim what you used to do, do T-I-M and dial the time and I would then be pretend to be my mother talking to her friends I'd say oh darling darling you know oh let's go and meet the <laughs> do a sort of imitation of her and then she smoked a lot so I'd you know have a pencil in my mouth and pretend to smoke and what she would do pretending to be me would be kind of handstands and things, which was quite daring of her, <laughs> yeah. actually. I remember her skirt kind of falling down and showing her knickers because she was doing, doing a handstand in the, on, the, on the carpet. And that we, we laughed and laughed and laughed over that game. And, of course, laughter is such a, a bond, isn't it? If mm-hmm. you can laugh with somebody, you can't be angry with them anymore. Um, and I just wish there had been more of those laughter moments. You said once that you felt she was always perched on the abyss of anger towards you. Mm. How did that show itself? If we would misbehaved, mm. I think on the whole, that both Joe and I were, were were well. I think actually many children in those days um, were sort of almost um, too anxious or too scared to be anything but obedient to middle class parents. So we, we we were, I think, really quite well behaved children. But if things went wrong, um, if we created too much noise, or if we lost things or damaged things. She would get furious with mm. us, and and um, her anger was a um, a startling thing. Did she ever hit you at all? No, she never. She never. Yes, no, she did once. She did once. I, I again, I recount this in my little memoir that we were in Liberties, the the the, the department store Liberties, and um, she was buying some material or something, and I was told to wait, just wait outside the department. And I was leaning on on a sort of little demonstration case, sort of a flimsy little thing, I think, 
looking at um, bits of jewellery and stuff inside. And I, mu I must have been about, <clears throat> I don't know, seven or eight. And I was quite tall, so not, not a tiny child. And I was leaning on this thing and it collapsed in a, in a thousand shards of oh, glass. No. This whack came. And um, I remember the, um, <laughs> the very kind women who worked in the fabric department rushing out with little swatches of material to try and because I was hysterical about that I was just screaming mm. and um, they they rushed out with these swatches of material um, I'll never forget the look of them actually I, I, I was quite consoled now if I go and look at fabric by swatches because I can remember these women mm. showing me these 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 pieces of material and saying what color is that and, you know trying to kind of calm me down but I think that was the only time I was ever hit mm. you said in your memoir that you started pulling out your eyelashes do you think that was just because you were so frustrated and I mean now it'd almost be self-harm wouldn't it it is a, it is a, a kind of mild form of mm. self-harm isn't it yes I used to lie I can remember doing this now I could lie in bed and pluck 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 and um then my father once said you look like an albino so I had no eyelashes left. Oh. It's freaky, isn't it, really? I don't quite know why that happened. My, my sister started pulling the skin off her lips. Mm. I think we, um, we developed these little ticks kind of physical ticks. Yeah. Can you remember what you felt when you were doing it? I, I mean, I, I, I've never quite understood self-harm because it seems so frightening to me. But I can, Im I can imagine that if that is what you come to want to do, there must be some sort of feeling of relief or physical pleasure or something in it. Mm -hmm. um, you're, it's not that just that you, there's an agonizing moment of pain and then trying to bandage the pain. It's something else, isn't it? And I think it's the same. This is a very mild form of self-harm. I don't think I did anything else damaging to myself. But your mother had obviously had a, quite a traumatic background herself hadn't she because her parents your mm. grandparents had lost both their sons mm. one mm. one a best appendix and one in the mm. war mm. uh did you do you think she felt that she'd never really been loved and then somehow took that out in a way on you replicated the same thing yes i think she and, and, and actually when i look back on on those years of when we used to go to lincolnholt and stay with the grandparents i feel incredibly sorry for her because i think one has to say that there was a tendency in that generation to to want to have sons. And if you, you know, by some miracle you got two sons, it was the sons you focused on, mm. both my grandmother and my grandfather. And so they, and they lost them both. So they were left with this middle child, my mother, who they didn't love nearly as much as they'd loved their boys, which is not to say not at all. But there was very little manifestation of affection when I look back on it. I think Joe and I were sort of vaguely aware of this kind of slight frostiness around the dinner table or, or you know, in, in various social situations at Lincoln Hill. But we probably couldn't have, have been, we couldn't have analysed it at that mm. time. When I look back on it, I think that it was very difficult for my mother. And But uh, that said, I, I'm, I slightly resist the idea that if you've had a difficult childhood, who, and, you haven't been loved enough that that makes you a bad parent. I don't mm. think it's, I think it can happen. It, it does often happen, as we know. But I don't think there's a kind of inevitability mm. about it. And do you think she ever really loved you? And did you ever love her, do you think, or not? Or do you think that was all reserved for your nanny? Do you know, I mean, if I'm honestly honest, I don't know whether she did. Um, it seems to me as a mother and as a, and as a grandmother that, well, you know, I, I like to manifest my love to 
my daughter and my grandchildren, in all kinds of ways. And that manifestation, you know, through kindness, through understanding, through listening, through encouraging, was not really there. So I, I couldn't really say. I mean, when she was much older, I mean, she only died in, in I think she died in 2001. So she lived well on into, you know, my own adult life. She used to say that she loved me at that point. I think maybe looking back, she felt she hadn't said it enough. Mm. But it was meaningless to me by the time that she came came to say it. So I just don't know. I don't know what she felt. I, I often used to ask the question, Joe and I used to ask the question, do you think if she'd had boys, you know, the, yes, it's actually, the way that generation mm, yeah. still kind of followed their parents in, in valuing the boys more than the girls. If she'd had boys, would she have loved, she'd had a son, would she have loved him mm. and cared about what he did? And this was the other thing, that she didn't care. She, she didn't sort of have any plan for me or for my sister about what we might do with our lives. And when we started to do things ourselves, she, she tended to kind of, denigrate them. So how do you feel when you look back on her? Do you feel angry that she didn't kind of break that vicious cycle, if you like, of um, lack of affection, lack of love? Or do you feel well, sorry? Yeah. Well, so I kind of a combination of, of, of both. I was talking to, to, to my daughter about this the other day. And in an ideal world, you pass through through three stages, the first of which is anger, and then you come to acceptance. And then eventually you come to forgiveness. And I'm not sure I got beyond. I'm not sure I've ever really got beyond anger. Um, but that's that's not to say that it has kind of blighted my my life at all. I don't, in fact, I think it's probably been a kind of um, a little uh, grain of mm. sand in the. Well, I can't characterise myself as a pearl exactly, but you know <laughs> what I mean. You know that you know, the image I'm struggling yeah. for. Um, that it's it's been a kind of. Um, little kernel of, of um, resolve in me. It's fostered that. But I don't think I have, or probably now will never get to complete forgiveness, because I think it was a kind of a waste. Yeah. I mean, this is what I see now with you know, having, having the next two generations, how wonderful they are. Mm. You know, why didn't she value me or my sister why, mm. why not mm. do you think it's been a sense of just proving yourself the whole time you just almost subconsciously think if I do slightly better I do one more novel that is even more successful that she'll finally crack or I don't think I've consciously thought like mm. that no and the reason I haven't is that I sort of gave up on it I think I didn't go on neurotically all through my writing life thinking if I, if I you know I write something a bit more successful she'll finally finally think that I'm I'm worth paying attention to there was a time anyway I mean she went almost blind towards the end of her life so she couldn't read but um, there was a time when she um, sort of pretended to read my books and she kept saying well you'll never you'll never make she kept saying you'll never make a success of this you'll you know it was very no, very kind even of even when you had yeah well she questioned it all the time well darling it's all relative isn't it you know it's just relative, isn't it? Do you think I mean, she was envious of you at all? She would never have admitted that. I don't think. Um, I think. I think she saw that that um, that the writer's life is extremely interesting life, but is not exactly easy. Mm. And again, I think what the women in particular of that generation were after was ease, emotional, physical ease. She wanted life to kind of be just okay. Mm. And I think she saw that I was going in, in directions which actually courted 
quite a difficult, uh, challenging kind of life with a lot of travel, with a lot of judgment going on. I think she probably said to us, well, I don't know how Rose can bear to do that. So the end result, the books, were of some interest to her. I mean, she used to say, what was it? She used to sometimes give me compliments at one remove, which was, I think the psychology of this is quite interesting. She used to say, you know, dear old Buffy or Bunny or, you know, her friends. (laughs) She said, oh, Cherry read, you know, read a book of yours the other day and and she really liked it. And, you know, like with a certain sort of edge of surprise in her voice. And so that was quite interesting. Mm. Um, I think she played bridge. She's a very good bridge player, my mother. And I think it's quite possible that round the bridge table, Cherry and Bunny (laughs) (laughs) said, oh, well, you know, Rose is doing okay, isn't she? And my mother said, well, I I don't know. But, you know, she liked having this this little bit of approbation from her friends. Fascinating. So what about your father? Because he was actually a not very successful playwright, wasn't he? Do you, What was he like when you were growing up? Was he affectionate? Did he replace any of that sort of missing love from your mother? Was he even more remote? Very, very detached. Extremely detached. Um, when I was 10, he left and married somebody else much younger than him. And he went on to have a second family. And for a brief time, I was in touch with a couple of the children that he'd had by his second marriage. And actually, they said to me, well, he's quite detached from us as well. He he had a kind of, a sort of almost, a sort of, it's hard to characterise what it is. I mean, detachment is really the best word to use from, from the world. He liked to be amused, and he had quite a good sense of humour. And I remember this, that we were allowed to buy comics on our way home from school. And the one I act best was called School Friend. <laughs> the School Friend exists anymore. It's a great shame. It's a terrific little comic. And there was a, a picture story in School Friend called Lettuce Leaf, the Greenest Girl in the School. Quite <laughs> <laughs> appropriate now, actually. Yes, <laughs> a different kind of green. Green as in ignorant, you know. And lettuce was, was a kind of, um, you know, not, not very flatteringly drawn I think there was she was the butt of of rather unkind jokes but my father used to come up to the nursery which is where Joe and I had our existence with Nan and together we used to read Lettuce Leaf the greenest girl in the school it rarely used to make him laugh and I remember thinking this laughter it it takes me back to describing to you the game that I played with my mother where the the great bond between us was humour, was laughter. Mm. And it was a bit the same thing over Lettuce Leaf, that that really made my father laugh. I mean, I I feel sorry for what happened to his career, really, because he was writing... I think he wasn't a a bad writer, but he was writing exactly at the wrong time. He was writing in the 1950s. He was writing sort of what used to be called sort of drawing room comedies Mm. in this, you know, that kind of mode. And it was was absolutely being overtaken... Mm by John Osborne and Arnold Wesker and David Story and, you know, the new generation of of much more radical, gritty playwrights. So playwrights like my father were kind of swept aside. And, of course, that must have been very, very hard for him. I remember there was a moment where, in my childhood, in fact, just before he left the household, when I was 10, I guess, where there was a play of his that was going to come into the West End uh, with an actress called Margaret Layton, who was quite well known in the, at that time, and um, because she had agreed to do it, the producers were going to bring it into the West End. And then she was suddenly at the last minute offered a movie, and so she didn't do it, and so the production never happened. And I remember my father going into a kind of 
a slight decline about that. I think he felt this was his one chance and it had gone. So when I look back, I think it was very tough on him, that mm. actually. But I never got to see the result of it because then he left. Mm. He took all this sadness about his own career with him and you know and then started again with the, you know never saw us ne I mean just cut off completely you're listening to past imperfect with Rachel Sylvester Alice Thompson and our guest this week the writer Rose Tremaine I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, the writer Rose Tremaine. father left you were packed off to boarding school so that must have been another betrayal in some ways because Nan couldn't have come with you so you were no. suddenly on your own or in a dormitory mm. with a lot of girls you didn't know yeah how knew, did you cope well I knew one girl um Jane my friend Jane Mackenzie who was also packed off to the same school and of course Joe was packed off to the school too so I knew two people I knew Jane and I knew and my sister was there so it could have been worse um but the I think the first term was very very difficult and as you say, the cold dormitory and the absolute unfamiliar space. I don't know if either of you were ever sent to boarding school, but there's a lot of dead time. You've got the whole day, you know, the school day doesn't end at 3.30 or whatever, like now. And you've got all this dead time to fill in. And that actually was, I found very, very difficult to start off with. Then I thought, well, I've got to fill this up in some way. And that's when I started writing stories and then eventually plays. Um, so the school rather transformed itself from being um, a hostile place to being quite a creative place. So by the time I was 13 or 14, I was writing plays. 
not only writing them, <laughs> starring in them. <laughs> Did you always get the starring part? No, I never got the starring part because the, 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 the drama coach quite reasonably said, well, you're the writer, you, you can't be the star. But, you know, I could be sort of part of the direct, you know, mm. and design the scenery and do everything for the play. Which was uh, which was great, and I also um, was you know there's I think a lot of writers would probably share this experience that I had a very very excellent English teacher, a woman called Ida Robinson, who was a, at Oxford in the 1930s. It's quite a feat for women in the 1930s, and she was marvelous. She was just you know, and I think I think she saw a kind of um, little bits of promise in me, and she encouraged them on. And I was learning French, and she helped me learn better French and start to translate things and and we did paintings of books she was very keen that we could we could make visual representation of the things that we read so that, that there was a sort of wonderful crossover between the art teaching and the English teaching so we did we did representations of I don't know John Maysfield's work and poems by Keats and they're all up on the English room wall so there were a lot of uh, consolations to that school mm. really it was a creative place and did you feel that writing was also your way to escape or a way to kind of manage your pain or control the world around you or at least create a fantasy world that you could control? Fantasy world is very much it. And uh, I think this is um, the pathway that I sort of found myself on very early. But the stories I wrote when, on, and the plays and so on when I was at school, they were not about me or people like me. They were, they were about, you know, clowns or mermaids or rather sort of fantastical beings um, and that I I probably couldn't have articulated this at the time but looking back on it I think that's exactly how I coped with that time was by inventing things and people and places and kind of environments that were totally made up mm. or perhaps derived from such reading as I've been doing or or places that I kind of dreamt about or I think there was I think dreams perhaps play quite a lot of part in it, but that, that that I found it fantastically helpful to my mental state to put myself in these made up places. And were they happy places? Yes, I mm. think they. I mean, they were they were um, they were not always happy stories. I mean, the first play that I wrote, which was called Always a Clown, <laughs> not not a cliche, not a cliche, um, <laughs> Always a Clown. Um, was about this. I can't remember quite how it develops, but it was about you know that old cliche, the sad clown. But um, we had fantastic fun with music, with costumes, with you know a sort of thundering um, plot. I knew nothing about what the life of a clown was like, <laughs> but I I thought I could, could sort of a life of a clown must be extraordinary, so I could invent anything that I wanted. Mm. And the obvious place for you to have gone would have been to go on to university, but in fact, your mother then sent you to finishing school, didn't she? Oh, Lord, was that? Yeah. I mean, that must have just been horrendous. Or did you quite enjoy walking around with a book on your head? Mm. Oh. That that was a blow. That I mean, was, what does what do you do at a, finishing school? What do you do? Um, well, I did one good thing, which is that I, I could already speak French a bit because because of the help I'd had at school. But I learned to speak quite good French, and I I sort of I, I, I think the rebellious streak in me just came out when I found myself at this place and um, so I hatched a plan with a friend called Miranda we, we got to we got to just get out of mm. this so we did a daring thing you know aged 18 or whatever we were we went along to the Sorbonne I'm sure you can't do this now we went along to the Sorbonne and we just walked in and we could speak quite good French by then we said we wanted we want to enroll in your cours de civilisation <laughs> and they said well okay you know you pay a little and you come in so we left the school 
and we just enrolled. And I remember I was smoking gitans on the <laughs> on the Boulevard Saint Michel and uh, Black Pelle, yeah. flirting yeah. with the students and uh, yeah, having a lovely time. And really exciting time then in Paris. Oh, yes, that was good. So, what was the trigger to really start writing seriously again? I can't really remember. Mm. Um, my first novel was about a man who has been a butler in a, a grand house, a little bit like Lincoln Elk Manor. So I suppose if you were an analyst, you would say, well, the trigger was guilt about your child, your slightly privileged um, upper middle class childhood. Because what I do in this novel, which is called Sadler's Birthday, is I make um, the, 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 the central character, Sadler, who's been the butler, he, um, by quirk of circumstance, inherits the the big house. So he, where he's once been a servant, he becomes the master of the house, and it's a kind of mournful book in, in a way that this is sort of it's written at the end of his life, but with flashbacks into his life as a, as a servant. Um, so I suppose you could say that that was the that was the push that I need to somehow come to terms with with some of that. Um, and I think I, I literally thought, and this is sometimes what happens to me now, that I, that I think, well, I've got a sort of, <laughs> what I would call sort of half-baked idea. I think that all my ideas are sort of half-baked, and then, and then the process of writing is, is, is baking them. Um, but they always start off in a kind of unmade sort of way. And um, I think this started off in a very unmade kind of way, but it, it baked itself as I went along. And when you made the grant a list and you were with people like Martin Amis, what did that feel like? Well, the boys dominated it. Mm. Can't you imagine? Mm. You, you know the answer to that, yes. don't you? I mean, we, we, Pat Barker and I and Maggie G and people were not known by anybody. And um, Ian and, and, and Martin were, were, were already, you know, because they started, McEwen, yeah. Ian McEwen and Martin Amis, and then, of course, Salman Rushdie. They'd started very, very young, and so they were already known. I started relatively late. I was in my late 30s before anything interesting happened to my work. So there was, it was definitely a hierarchy. Um, you know, all fences since mended with those people. You know, they're, they're good friends now. But there was a kind of hierarchy of, you know, the, the posh boy or the clever boys and, and the rest of us. But it was, um, it was very interesting because I learned later there'd been a huge scramble for, for, for people to get onto that list. And because I, by that time, I was living in, in Suffolk and had no connection with the literary world really whatsoever, apart from just tangentially through the publishers. I hadn't even known that the list was coming. And then I suddenly found myself on it. And in, it, in, in retrospect, that was a, you know, a good moment. Mm. But I hadn't solicited it. And recently there's been this sort of suggestion that it's the male novelists who are on the shelf and that it's flipped and that now women writers are getting far more commissions. Do you think it's the pendulum swung too far the, the other way? There are almost too many female writers now, not enough male ones. I hadn't really noticed that. I mean, maybe my, my, my remit is not wide enough, you know. Um, I think you'll need to sort of... I mean, you guys are probably in a better position to judge that because... You're, you're doing a kind of almost like a weekly survey of what's happening, whereas I'm in, in my little, mm. little bowtail trying mm -hmm. to just do my own stuff. So it's, it's quite possible that that's happening. Um, more interesting is, is the quality of work coming in, whether from men or women, is it, how good is it? You know, I, it seems to me that, that publishers have become... I mean, I'm sent a lot of books all the time, and it does seem to me that publishers have become less discerning about what they decide to publish. 
I was very shocked in, in recent times when I was talking to a quite senior editor about this and he said, oh, I just throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And I thought, well, that is how publishing seems to me to be at the moment. But there's a lot of rather mediocre, there's some excellent stuff, but there's a lot of mediocre stuff. Perhaps there always was. Is it then frustrating if you can't put yourself into other people's shoes? So you've had books when you've written about migrants or mm. you've written about, I think it was a boy who wanted to be a girl. It was a girl who wanted, wanted to be a boy. Yeah, um, and yeah. those sort of issues now, when, you know, it's very mm. difficult now in the publishing world if you go, well, stray really too far from your origins, isn't it? And does Extremely that really irritate you in the end? Because your writing is about always thinking about other people and how they react. I think it's true. I'm mean, just to go back to, to that book um, about a transgender uh, little girl who, who absolutely has a total conviction that that's where her journey has to lie, is becoming male. Um, and I've been rereading this book recently because I'm, I'm offering it as an, um, f to one of the pen auctions. And it's, I, I, I sort of reminded myself how much, how many interviews I did with transgender people, how much research I did into what was known at the time. This is early 90s I was writing this. So as well as my own imagination, I was actually doing a lot of legwork on this. Um, I, I didn't just assume that I could project my own imagination into this dilemma. So, and, and that would also be true of The Road Home, which is about the experience of an immigrant, that I talked to a lot of immigrant workers. And it now seems to me that all of those routes have been cut off and people are saying, well, you, you know, there is a kind of, a sort of something morally dubious about even attempting that. Um, and I, well, I think the word you used was, is it annoying? I think it's, I think it's a bit crucifying, actually, for a writer like me. I don't know where it leaves me um, because I'm not going to start writing books. That, I mean, I wrote one little memoir, but I'm not going to start writing novels which are you know, about my own life. Um, that's just not what I want to do. So I'm, maybe it's, it's saying to writers of my generation, right, well, you, you just be quiet now. You know, we don't want to hear from you anymore. I don't know. I mean, I think that's quite depressing because um, I, I feel that there is still, you know, some possibly some good work in me, but I, I that it, lots of avenues have been completely cut off. So do you think Sacred Country, which was that novel about the girl who, who wanted to be a boy, do you think that that couldn't be published now or wouldn't be published now? And I'm sure it wouldn't. I'm sure it wouldn't. I'm sure if I actually went to the publisher and said, this is what I'm writing now, yeah. they usually try to share with them what I'm doing, not necessarily show them anything early on, because I like to sort of get the whole thing done before anybody sees anything. But they would say, no, 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 don't, don't go there. You can't do it. So you know, why? You because you're not well, that because Well, because it's not authentic. They would say, you know, it's not the authentic experience. The people who, who can write those books are the people who've experienced it and nobody else is allowed to do it. Mm. But how far does it go? I mean, I'm, would I be allowed? I mean, I've often written in the guise of a man in Restoration. Mm. I'm this kind of a totally out of order guy, um, you know, cracks a lot of jokes. Would I be allowed to do that even? I don't know. I mean, even Tom Stoppard, who again, I mean, his, his um, great sort of um, display of work is is absolute evidence of him projecting his imagination in lots and lots and lots of different places. 
And he, I think he is, is on record as saying that he's sort of treading through treacle now, mm. doesn't know where to go. Um, I think it's just made the pathway very, very difficult for us. Um, and it's not just what we write, it's also what we say mm. about what we write or mm. what about what other people write. So um, it's, like, <laughs> it's like we're suddenly in a sort of, I don't know, we're walking through a forest with sort of man traps mm. and you could fall into them at any time. So it's so, much more narcissistic if you can only write about yourself in a way, isn't it? Hideously narcissistic, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think just not very interesting. Just not very interesting at all. Well, I mean, unless you've had an absolutely exceptional mm. life. I mean, this is where, where fiction has paused, isn't it, I think. It's sort of in, in the most accepted fiction is in the hands of people who have had rather exceptional, usually traumatic early lives. And it's it, that sort of gives that gives an authenticity to what, you know, tracing their own story. There is actually a story to tell. So do you feel quite impatient now about how much you still have to do? You were diagnosed with cancer, weren't you, in 2019. Can you, what effect has that had on you in terms of your work? It made me feel that I needed to speed up. Mm. Um, it was quite severe. So uh, there was a time in hospital where I couldn't even write my name, um, couldn't operate the keys on my phone. I mean, I was so kind of, you know, I lost nearly three stone of weight. Um, it was the, 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 the operation was, was severe, but the recovery time was really, really severe. And I didn't know whether I was going to pull out of it. Um, but I did. And, and then as soon as I vaguely started to be able to sort of lead something approaching normality and eat food again and so on, I thought, OK, well, the next test is to see whether I can write something. And I had had this idea for this new novel, Lily, it's sort of lurking around in my brain before the cancer diagnosis. And I thought, well, let me pick up on this and do the reading for this and see if I can get something going. I thought, well, there is a kind of sense of urgency. I didn't know how long I was going to survive. Well, I still don't know, but I mean, I certainly didn't know then. So I think it's affected me in that way of, um, and also trying things. I've written a children's book, which is not sort of my oh, comfort right. zone. Is that at to all. your grandchildren? Well, it was inspired by reading to my grandchildren. I mean, they're now old enough to read for themselves, but I spent a long number of years, or Rich and I both did, reading the, the, the lovely bedtime story moment which I used to which I used to love um, lots of laughs and it's a very bonding thing and I used to read to my daughter now reading to my grandchildren was lovely but it did occur to me because we've got through so many books I thought well some of them are wonderful um, and they're kind of written with the idea of the the reader in mind as well as the child the, the, mo the mm. mother father or mm. grandparents and some of them aren't some of them have no <laughs> No jokes in them whatsoever, and nothing, nothing for the for the reader to kind of get hold of. I thought, let me write, a, let me try and find a little story that is actually quite funny. Um, will make the reader, the the parent or grandparent, laugh. Um, probably make the kid laugh, but that that I was sort of writing it for the mm. the parents as well. Has it got mermaids and clowns mm. in it? <laughs> I can't tell you what it's got in it. That's a secret at the moment. They have found me, Richard Jones, who is. Um, you you can look up his 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 work. It's I mean he's a wonderful wonderful illustrator. Have you tested it on the grandchildren? No, I haven't. I haven't not yet. No, I will once once Richard's because I mean so much with with which this I mean it's actually it's, it's it's a little story really for sort of four to five year olds and that my grandchildren are older than that now. But 
But I think with Richard's illustrations, um, and he's about, I had a meeting with him the other day, and we're very much in tune with, with how we see it. But I, it's, it's all kind of in the future, that. Um, it was just a little thing that I thought I'd do. And I, I thought, well, it'll probably sit in the bottom drawer. The fact that it hasn't sat in the bottom drawer and it's been taken up by really good illustrators is terrific. Mm. So just going back to your cancer, when did you realise something was wrong? Um, not until the diagnosis came. Um, I had jaundice. Mm. And, um, so you I went very yellow. I look, I look a bit, I look a bit yellow. Mm. <laughs> the whites of your eyes go yellow. Have you ever had jaundice? The whites mm. of your eyes go a bit yellow. It's a bit freaky. Um, and then that, then I had what I thought was a urinary infection. So I went to the doctor with these two things. And she said, no, it's bowel duct. It's um, a blockage. Mm. Um, so I was literally kind of ambulanced in to hospital. And um, they diagnosed it within two days. But this is, a, this is a pancreatic cancer, which they don't operate on in my local hospital, which is the Norfolk and Norwich. The only people who do this this operation is called the Whipple operation, where they take away a lot of your stomach and your small intestine and some of your pancreas. It's very, very severe. And the only place where they do it is Addenbrooke's Hospital. So I had to wait a couple of weeks um, knowing that it was there. And um, But they said they, it was small enough that they could still operate. So I was, I was quite lucky that the jaundice had sort of signaled something. Because mm. I might just have gone on, because I wasn't in pain. But these these other little symptoms came. And you decided not to have chemotherapy. Why did you do that? Did you want to get back to your writing? Or uh, I mean, if you get to my age, you know a lot of people who've had cancer. And somebody said to me, actually, you know, they'd had a their mum or their friend had died. She said it was the chemotherapy that killed them. They were just pulling out of of the trauma of an operation, just beginning to get back to. I mean, my I mean, I won't go into this rather grim, but I, that I just couldn't keep any food down, and. Um, getting back home and being able to cook a little bit and between us rich and i cooking proper food it just enabled me to start eating getting a little bit stronger mm. and and i'd got to the point where i just sort of beginning to feel a little bit of normality and they said right well we're now going to give you chemotherapy and actually the chemo we're going to give you uh, risks to disturb the feeling in your hands and feet so i thought well a i won't be able to walk b i won't be able to write oh. so i thought no i think not. <laughs> you know if i was if I was your age, I, I might um, have said yes, but I thought, no, let me have a little bit more time. And I've had two years now, almost a day, um, two years, and at the moment I'm, I'm feeling okay. And can you imagine being alive and not writing? Is it just so innate in you that you have to always write something down? It, it creates a huge panic in me if I'm not working. <laughs> it really does. Um, this is a terrible neurosis, isn't it? Because at my age, I mean, a lot of people are very content to just sort of pot around and see friends and do the garden. Um, and I, I, just, I just sort of feel, I think, it, I think it takes me back, actually, to one thing that I haven't mentioned. That is after I was sent to, um, to the boarding school, where there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of dead time, but then we managed to fill it up with a lot of activities and the playwriting and so on and the artwork. But I used to, when I used to go home, I used to long to go home. But um, when I went home, I used to feel slightly bored. And I thought, what is this? What is this feeling of, of, of feeling bored? Um, so I think I've always had a very kind of low threshold for being told to do nothing mm. or just sort of potter around. <laughs> um, and as I say, I know at my age, this is what I'm meant to be doing. But 
actually it, it fills me with panic the mm. idea of not having something to work on my my natural gravitation is next door to my my office in the mornings that's my natural gravitation and um not to be able to go in there anymore would be would be just devastating mm. and looking back to yourself at the age of 10 when your father left what do you wish you'd known then that you know now Well, I think I had a sort of um, idea, maybe not at age 10, but a little bit later, vis-a-vis my father's writing career, um, which was, was given a certain reverence in our house. I mean, mum used to say, you know, be quiet, dad's working. And I used to, had a little study on a sort of on a first landing. And I remember hearing him tapping away on an old typewriter. Um, I think... What I did sort of wonder, begin to wonder very early on is, is this vocation of writing, is this necessarily doomed? Might one not be able to make something of it? And that kind of stayed with me. It was, it was, it was a bit inchoate. It didn't mm. quite, I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I think this little sort of worm of, why don't I later on sort of try this, was there right, right from, from childhood. Um, I mean, if you asked me to trace the pathway back, if I was in therapy or whatever, I think it'd be very difficult, you know, the various stages of it. And then giving up um, after the Switzerland thing, giving up a bit, um, but then starting again. I don't know, it's difficult to follow a journey backwards, isn't it? But I think it did begin then, feeling it need not be doomed. Rose Tremaine, thank you very much. Thank you so much. listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the novelist Rose Tremaine. This is a Wireless Studios production produced by Ben Mitchell. To listen back to our previous episodes, do go to the Times Radio app or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in this series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organizations who are there to help. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.